GraphQL is really, really introspectable. And that means like the tooling that you can build around it is just phenomenal. It is very, very young in the industry. And the idea is it's going to take time for this to grow out. And we're okay with that. We've positioned ourselves to grow and educate our users along the way. So the goal here is to make it so that you can take this query that you've built up, that you know, you've been happy with, and actually move it somewhere in a copy and paste manner and be productive. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. In the house, we've got Sean Grove from OneGraph. Hey, Sean. Hey, thank you for having me. We had met, maybe you reached out to me through Twitter, maybe, possibly? I think a mutual friend introduced us. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so you're doing OneGraph stuff. So you want to tell the audience what OneGraph is and what you're working on? Yeah, sure. So the idea is pretty simple. It's kind of schema stitching as a service in a way. So it's a single GraphQL API endpoint through which you can reach in and pull out data from Spotify, Stripe, GitHub, Salesforce, and actually connect data between all of them. So I think with one query, you can pull out all the data your application needs in like a really fun way. Excellent. So is this a GraphQL company or why GraphQL? Yeah, so GraphQL has a lot of different uh, benefits. So some of them are one that you can finally represent the connections between all of these different data sources. So that's a big one, right? So oftentimes your Salesforce data probably has some connection over to Zendesk and GitHub might have some connection to NPM, for example. And these are separate APIs usually. And in like a REST structure, it's really hard to represent those connections between them without cramming all of them at the same time. Yeah. So GraphQL makes it like really easy to describe the relationships between them, so you can kind of explore that. The other big one that is kind of near and dear to my heart is that GraphQL is really, really introspectable. And that means like the tooling that you can build around it is just phenomenal. It's very, very different. Yeah, so you mentioned schema stitching, which uh, I'm not sure we actually particularly talked about that on the podcast, but you kind of explained it really well and eloquently. Are you legitimately like using schema stitching on the back end to connect all these other APIs in the, I guess, the quote unquote one graph? Or how's, how does that work? Sure. So most of the services that we provide through OneGraph don't actually have a GraphQL API. Yeah. So Spotify, for example, has a really well documented and a really nice API, but it is a REST API. And so the tooling and the experience with it is is kind of limited in many ways. And so we have built a lot of tools internally to make it easy to build a GraphQL API on top of these REST APIs. And then in addition to that, we make it so that we can add connections between, say, Spotify and Wikipedia or something like that. Okay, so like, am I going to you for the APIs or do I bring the REST API to you and it make, makes it GraphQL? So right now, we don't have any sort of like crowdsourcing mechanism. So okay. everything is done internally. So we pick an API, we figure out how to approach it. There are a lot of lessons uh, to be learned and like how to take a REST API and make it really, really idiomatic and, and really joyous to use inside of GraphQL. And so we want to make sure that we have a lot of you know, automated tooling that makes sure that whenever we bring in a new API, that it looks like every other API. You know, so pagination should be normalized, authentication should be normalized, field name should be normalized. 
All the stuff you would expect. Once we have a lot of that infrastructure laid down, the goal is to make it so that other people can bring in descriptions of their APIs, so with a Swagger file or OpenAPI or their own mechanism, and say, I want to add this to the one graph. Right? Like I, I want to be able to join against this API, take advantage of all that tooling, along with all the other APIs that are inside of the one graph. Yeah, so I guess after today, like if I wanted to leverage the BART API through one graph, there's no way for me to submit that to OneGraph to be able to use? You would be able to email us, and then I think within about two or three days we'd have it out for you. Okay, wow. So Spotify took uh, less than a day. Less than a day? Yeah. Okay, so you're just taking like ad hoc community recommendations through exactly. email? So we're very horizontally driven right now where you know we work with our users and whenever they want to add something, we go and we figure out how to add it. Each time we take a look at our tooling, how well did that work, You know, what did we learn from it, and we improve that tooling to the point where eventually we'll be able to open source this, and anyone else will be able to do it as well. So, since you're you're providing like I guess the majority of these APIs within uh, OneGraph are REST APIs that have been I guess quote unquote converted to GraphQL, mm-hmm. is there anything that the users are missing out on for not having like a true pure GraphQL experience, or does that matter at this point? No, I don't think so. Actually, we do a lot of things that are. Incredibly optimized. So, because we have a deep understanding of how each of these APIs work, we can actually apply a lot of optimizations to them. For example, the Trello API is really interesting, uh, where it allows you to batch together different requests. Yeah. And if you were to take a naive kind of GraphQL wrapper, or if they were to probably implement their own naive GraphQL API, it would be like we can take one request on our side, and it would turn into say 1,500 API requests. But we're able to reduce that to, say, five through some kind of optimizations that we're able to run. So I think it's not too bad. And in fact, even GitHub is interesting. So GitHub has a native GraphQL API, yeah. and it's really well done. However, it is missing some features from GitHub's REST API. Yeah. And so we are the only GraphQL API right now through which you can actually create a repository on GitHub. So we actually stitch together the GitHub REST APIs into the GraphQL API, so you have a much more complete access to all of the uh, GitHub functionality. Interesting. Yeah, so you're basically just filling in the holes. I guess that GitHub's still sort of working on? Yeah, so I think the idea is that GitHub is very methodical about how they roll these things out, and I have deep respect for them. And so at some point, they're definitely going to figure out how to bring that functionality in. And what we'll do at that point is deprecate our fields. We'll still keep them there. We'll probably just stitch them into the new functionality. Uh, so existing users will keep working. But in the meantime, it means that there is a way to access all this functionality. The other important thing is that we really support serverless access. or like So basically being able to hit all these APIs directly from the browser. So being able to make a commit into a GitHub repository directly from your browser is kind of magical. It is really, really interesting. The kinds of tooling you could imagine, for example, building a blog editor. Maybe Jekyll or something. Yeah. And so you go to your blog and you go to slash edit, and it loads up some extra JavaScript, and you can make those changes and preview them right in the browser. And whenever you're happy, click a button and then actually make that mutation through the OneGraph GraphQL API for GitHub. That'll create a PR or automatically merge it, and that'll kick off, for example, a Netlify you know new build. And so you can kind of like edit your blog without any server involved whatsoever. It's a really really cool feeling. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. So. It sounds like OneGraph is a business, like it's a product that you're you're working on. So, are there customers, or who are you sort of focusing on to get the word out? Yeah, sure. So, our initial use case. So, uh, we went after a lot of very young uh, startups, in particular ones who are looking for kind of a serverless way to access all this data. 
And so we found like a lot of front-end developers resonated because there's so much interesting data in, for example, Salesforce or Spotify or Trello or Twilio. But the thing is, like learning those APIs and standing up a server, um, understanding rate limiting, authentication, like all that stuff is a really big burden. And so what that does is it really raises the bar for how much investment do you have to put in to build something interesting. And so our thought was, if we can actually lower that bar so it just becomes trivial, you can kind of click around and build something cool, you'd see a lot more front-end developers build really cool things. Yeah. So that was our first kind of set of users that resonated with us. There's been another kind of set of back-end developers. In particular, there's this kind of like omni-CRM space where a lot of times a product is pulling together data, again, from Gmail, Google Calendar, and Salesforce, for example. And being able to do that on the back end really efficiently without learning all those APIs, we were surprised to see like how much back end developers also like it as well. Yeah. So when you say lower the bar, am I just providing you my keys to these APIs and then I just have access to it through OneGraph? So you can do it either way. Authentication is like one of the bugbears of you know uh, building yeah. these, these apps, right? And so if you want, you can go to GitHub, for example, and you can provision a new API token and you can use that directly. But we also provide just a JavaScript library that just is one line where you say oneauth.login, GitHub, Spotify, whatever. We handle that whole round trip. We embed all of that logic. And then you just get a token and you can make these queries and like authentication is taken care of for you. So as a user, I don't have to actually find out where my tokens live. Exactly. Okay, I just hit the button and I'm good to go. Exactly. Interesting. So I'm curious about like so you you seem to be uh, one graph is like in the middle of all these other situations of GraphQL and you're seeing a lot of like firsthand experience of people using it. Yeah, what is GraphQL missing at this point? And you mentioned tooling as well. I know there's a lot of companies who are now coming up like Hasura is like handling all this Postgres handling. We got Prisma and Apollo like handling a lot of this like JavaScript world. So what are the some like I guess open range for people who want to use GraphQL, but is there a like missing opportunity out there? Yeah, I think you can probably split it in a couple of different ways, right? So there are forms of schema stitching, for example, I think that are going to be incredibly powerful. One that we've been looking at is, you know, for example, if we were to take your database tables and you have a table of users, and maybe one of them has a Stripe customer ID field. Yeah. You know, we could detect that and say, hey, do you want us to just add a Stripe customer node here? And you could just query into this, you know, Hasura or PostgreSQL file endpoint and pull out all of the data on your user, but also join right there into Stripe and pull out all the Stripe information. Same with Salesforce or Zendesk. So I think that a kind of deeper level of schema stitching is going to be really, really powerful in the future. GraphQL is young. Yeah. Uh, and, and what we find is that a lot of people who are excited about GraphQL don't realize how young it is. Like, there's kind of this assumption that everyone knows what it is and, and how great it is. And people sign up for OneGraph oftentimes, like what they're looking for is easy access to the data. And they heard that OneGraph is a way to get easy access to this data. And then they think that actually GraphQL is like our proprietary language. They've never seen it before. Yeah. And so it's a big hill for them to climb, right? So we deal with people who have never heard of GraphQL. And so we want to make it as easy as possible, like every step along the way. And I think there's a lot of great workshops and a lot of documentation, but the tooling isn't really great for newcomers in many ways. And so we've worked really hard to make, for example, with uh, Graphical, which is a, a great open source IDE by Facebook. And it allows you to like write nice GraphQL queries and experiment with a GraphQL server. The thing is, it's textual, and it requires that you understand GraphQL syntax. And for a lot of our users, that's pretty terrifying. 
And so we actually made it so that we realized that GraphQL is so introspectable and like the tooling that you can build are so nice. We made it so it's like exploring a file system where you simply have a list of like all your files of like Stripe and GitHub and whatnot, and you just check it and it opens up and shows you the subfolders. So for GitHub, you check it and it's like user or repositories or whatnot, right? Yeah. So I can now say, all right, well, I want GitHub and I want a user with this username. I want the repositories and for each repository, I want the name. And you see people just kind of click through and build up a GraphQL query. They are able to express very, very clearly the data they want and get that out and it's really exciting for them. And I think there is a ton of low-hanging fruit in that area of like just building out great, like joyous experiences in the beginning for a lot of GraphQL users. There's a lot of stuff also on the back end in terms of analytics and network layer stuff for GraphQL that I think would be really cool. And then some like PhD research level stuff that I think would be cool. So happy about like talk about any of those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm all ears, all interested because um, you, you seem to have a lot of experience. Like my experience primarily is the GitHub GraphQL API. That's been my majority of my day to day as far as interacting with GraphQL, at least in the last year. But before we get into that, I had a question because you mentioned about GraphQL being new. I'm curious. I'm looking at your site, and GraphQL is only mentioned once on the mm-hmm. homepage. Is that intentional? Is are you looking to abstract the idea of GraphQL to make it less daunting for people to approach OneGraph? Yeah. So because GraphQL is so new, we don't talk about GraphQL to our users upfront unless it's like a developer endpoint that you're hitting. So if you're a developer, like we'll be very explicit. This is a GraphQL service, and we're not looking to like you know offer a REST endpoint or anything like that with this. But the point is, like, we first want to get you sold on like what is the value we're providing. We're providing easy access to this data. GraphQL is an implementation detail after that, right? And if we lead with GraphQL, it's actually kind of intimidating for a lot of new users, I think. Yeah, because in the, the context switching and maybe they go in a rabbit hole of trying to figure out where this thing came from. Exactly, exactly. So along those lines, you know, we kind of see it as like if you imagine a funnel from left to right, right? People come to our site. They sign up, and then we, we put them in graphical. And the first thing they were hit with was this blank canvas where they had to type in GraphQL, like we mentioned before. So the Explorer, with that file system kind of approach, that was an attempt to help ease the gap between not knowing anything and running your first GraphQL query and, and being able to explore very kind of physically, almost tangibly, like yeah. touch these things. What we find now is people get pretty excited as they get through because they're able to like pull out the data directly inside of graphical. But now there's a really big challenge where you know it's like, all right, I built up my query and I see this is the data I want. How do I get this into like a useful context? Right? How do I get this into my app? Right? So I have like a JavaScript app or a Python app. Like, how do I actually take this and get it in there? And so to that end, we've actually worked on another open source tool that we'll be uh, releasing pretty soon, which is a code exporter. And this is meant to be customized much more than the other tools that we've released so far. But the idea is we can introspect your query and say, look, we can actually just generate all of the nice React Apollo components or fetch. In one case, you can say, I want to curl. Uh, like bash program, and it's so cool because you you, you say um, OneGraph, for example, offers um, RSS via GraphQL, and so you're like, all right, for RSS, I take a podcast feed and I want to get the title and the items and you know the title of each episode, and then you can take that and actually generate like a bash file that you can use on the command line with no external dependencies. Because right now, another problem is that people tend to think that GraphQL is only for use on the front end. But it's you know it's this kind of abstract thing, and as long as you have you can make an HTTP request, you can use it anywhere. And so it's so cool to be able to interact with these like really sophisticated APIs, even from curl. So the goal here is to make it so that 
you can take this query that you've built up, that you know you've been happy with and you're excited, and actually move it somewhere in a copy and paste manner and be productive, right? So just kind of keeping that flow through the funnel as smooth as possible. Yeah, and are you translating that GraphQL query into like something like a REST as well, like so that you can get for people to wrap their brain around? Or is that too? We we don't do level? anything like that. Like we we bet pretty heavily on on GraphQL, and like it is very very young in the industry. And the idea is, it's going to take time for this to grow out, and we're okay with that. We've kind of positioned ourselves to like grow and educate our users along the way. So, as far as education goes, like what sort of ways are you educating your users, or even new users in GraphQL? Yeah. So, the kind of tooling that we release, so this Explorer, the Code Exporter, whatnot, that's meant to keep you kind of going through your GraphQL experience, kind of at a very high pace, right? To avoid all of the pitfalls that you might otherwise have. And we work pretty closely with a lot of workshop and educational like material providers, so that like we kind of figure out like what are the roadblocks that their students hit during this, and we try to figure out tools that we can build that help them teach their students GraphQL faster, because GraphQL is really exciting, and the idea is if we can get more people excited about it and, and show it to them in a way that they understand, like you're going to see a lot more usage of it in the long term. Okay, so you guys are just providing the content, you're not really doing any sort of training or. Showing up at companies or anything like that? So, we don't do that as a company. One thing I do personally is we started a meetup here in San Francisco that's a dojo style. And the goal here is to have ideally no talks or like maybe lightning talk at the most. What we really want to have is people building things with GraphQL and trying it and like learning there. And the dojo style is where everyone comes to the meetup. We split off anyone who has experience and put them on one side. Everyone else we number off into teams of about three. We then take that group of experienced people and we make sure that there's at least one of them on each team. And then from then on, everyone works on the same project. And the idea is there's only one person programming on each team, and that's the person with the least experience. And this sounds kind of intimidating at first, but what happens is they actually get experience like in their editor, on their computer, typing and and, and, using GraphQL. And so whenever they leave, they'll have like a working project. And everyone else is trying to figure out how to architect this solution, like how to model it. And so it actually takes a lot of pressure off of the person with the least experience and gives them a lot of practice. And at the end of the night, what we do is everyone demos what they built and they show how they built it. They kind of go over their code. And the nice thing is, you know, for example, let's say we're on different teams and you're presenting, because we're solving the same problem. I can kind of look at your solution and like understand the trade-offs much more deeply, right? Much more nuanced, and I'd be like, "Oh wow, actually, like Brian solved it in this way. That's like yeah. that has these trade-offs. That's really nice." And then we ask the teams, like, "What did you like? What did you dislike? And were you blocked on anything?" And then we try to take that, you know, what you disliked and what you were blocked on, and feed that back into either the tooling or into the documentation. And the goal here is like, this is a, just a personal thing that that we do. It's not like a, a company thing. But it's just to get people like to actually have experience and leave and be excited about it you know, on their own. Okay, the name of that meetup is? Uh, that's the Golden Gate GraphQL meetup. Oh, okay, cool. I don't think I've seen that come through my my feed. Is it on meetup.com? Yeah. Okay, I'll definitely check it out in the future. I like so like aside from the GraphQL talk, like I like the structure of the meetup. I'm actually from Florida, and we had a dojo style um, meetup where we do coder dojo, where we learn Ruby problems and write tests. So like test driven development to solve. And it was like a way to force everybody to learn the basics yeah, yeah. of Ruby as well as testing. Because like, what was it, like six years ago, testing was like still it was a thing, 
But I think a lot of like the boot camps were only just now starting to, to teach it. Actually, the boot camps were just now getting around. So it was a good opportunity for everybody to sort of like walk away learning. But we didn't have a very clear structure like to sound like. Well, I really like the idea for test driven development because when I first got into it, I was really struggling with like, what are the tests that I should be writing? Like, how does this work? And it would have been great to actually have been in a yeah. group with someone who like, you know, because the, the nice thing with having one experienced person on the team is anytime you bump up into something, you're like, you're struggling with it. They can just unblock you. They'd be like, you know, rather than you spending two days bumping your head against the wall trying to figure it out, this person can take five minutes and say, hey, this is the problem. This is why it's a problem. You can do this, don't do this. And now you move on and you can keep that momentum up and it just makes it much more joyous. Yeah. A good strategy to live by is yeah. uh, <laughs> asking for help earlier than later. Exactly. Surround yourself with, you know, experienced good people who know the domain. It's great. Okay. Excellent. So, uh, anything else about one graph that we didn't cover or just GraphQL in general? So like, I'll maybe drop a few ideas that I think are kind of inspirational. But one is, I think it's possible to actually subsume GraphQL in a way that people shouldn't be writing Graph. It, it's potentially, people shouldn't potentially not be writing GraphQL. And there is uh, a few people, uh, Cristiano Calgano actually at, at Facebook is like the one who came up with this idea for me. But the idea is, if you could take, for example, TypeScript, and we have a function, and we know that this is some type. It's like a GraphQL query. Yeah. And what I'm going to do is it gets passed in, and I'm going to say, you know, this query dot user or the query dot user dot name or whatever, right? And what I do is actually just by having autocomplete and like the fields I use, you can actually tell what is the GraphQL query that should be generated for this exact component, right? So it's like maybe we don't even have to have GraphQL as the thing that we write. It's just the mechanism by which tools communicate. Yeah. So that one is like a little bit of like a research problem, but I think it's it's incredibly exciting because it also translates to lots of other tools. You can imagine, for example, a kind of IDE tool where um, I'm building, for example, maybe a React Native app. So DraftBit is a great example of this, where they're building a, a React Native IDE, and I'm dragging in a component. And what I want is to be able to say, I have a GraphQL server. And I have this text box right here. And what I want is this text box to be the GraphQL server, you know, me.email or whatever, right? And that can be like nice autocomplete or that file system metaphor. And the thing is, you're actually kind of saying physically, tangibly, this is the data I want. And then the GraphQL can just be generated and hyper optimized for that exact thing behind the scenes. So people won't even know, or, you know, even things like haiku, right? It's animation tools where you have designers who can express the data they want without even knowing or caring that GraphQL is powering under the hood. So I think there's a lot of really exciting potential things for GraphQL around that. So then you're, I know, you've been in the GraphQL space for a couple of years. GraphQL's been around for a couple of years. Yeah. Like what's your sentiment on the the community and like the the spec itself and where it's going? Uh, so I think the GraphQL foundation is a, is a really encouraging move. In many ways, Facebook they have chosen a very deliberate set of trade-offs, and you know they have this monolith. Like they have very different engineering tastes from the rest of the world, and GraphQL is you know kind of came out of that, and that's great. But it doesn't necessarily always reflect how everyone else wants to use it. Yeah. And so, kind of moving it out of Facebook and into an area where it can kind of transform more based off of community needs, I think is going to be really exciting. Seeing some actual companies that are GraphQL first and growing up around that ecosystem is also going to be really exciting, I think. Uh, what companies are those? So I think Apollo, for example, is one that's actually pushing it right. Things like PostgreSQL, Hasura, or uh, things like those. Um, the Guild has done a lot of different open source work yeah. around it. So I think that there's a lot of exciting things 
that you know we're still very early. Like a, a secular shift, if, for example, from soap to rest, that took a decade, right? Like that took a long time. GraphQL has been around since I think 2015, roughly, like early 2015 is maybe when the, the first ideas were kind of out there. And so it's going to take a long time for you know actual migration over to GraphQL. And if you look on you know Google Trends, and you can see if you plot, for example, SOAP and REST and GraphQL, like the lines are exactly what you would expect. SOAP is very big, you know, ten years ago, and down to the right. REST up and to the right, and is huge. And GraphQL is this tiny little blip, you know, that just started out recently. And the curve is great; it's it's spiking, but it's going to be a long time before that actually surpasses REST. Excellent. Well, Sean, I appreciate you coming on and talking about OneGraph. If you don't mind, I'm going to transition us to picks. These are anything you're jamming on. Uh, it could be music related, tech related. We've had fish cutting as well as like oh, an, wow. an, an example. Uh, I I go to that example all the time because it's like <laughs> completely off the wall. So mm-hmm. if you don't mind, I see you're pretty prepared. Do you want to go ahead and just jump in with yours? Yeah, sure. My Saturdays are generally spent uh, no tech and no outside work and just kind of disconnecting. And one thing I've been enjoying is just kind of watching uh, the Paro series, Agatha Christie, and more recently Star Trek: The Next Generation, which I watched as a child, but I, I haven't watched as an adult. And I was a little bit worried it wouldn't hold up, but I, I quite quite like it. On the tech side, I think maybe one of the things I'm most excited about recently is, in particular, the Rust toolchain and WebAssembly. I think there are just so many interesting opportunities for, in particular, library authors. The stuff that's happening with WebAssembly. In the browser and outside, I think it's just amazing. Fastly, for example, is implementing isolation between processes without containers using WebAssembly as kind of like the universal IR. And the other thing about Rust is it's a systems level language, but it is inspired by Elm in terms of like just great error messages. The developer tooling is so polished. And the cool thing is they're inclusive in this way where they want JavaScript. Developers to realize that hey, you are also a systems level developer. You could be like you have been kind of artificially kept out of it for now, and so they have a tutorial. Anyone can go through on the Rust WebAssembly thing, where within thirty minutes you will have written the game of life in Rust. You will have compiled it down into WebAssembly. You'll use the toolchain to actually automatically generate an npm package with beautiful TypeScript bindings that are type safe all the way through. So what happens is you write everything in Rust, and then you go in your, your TypeScript editor, and you get like autocompletes and enums, and it's type safe, and it's just beautiful. And I really, really recommend that people go and check out the Rust and WebAssembly handbook. Excellent. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. I was not even aware that they've moved on that far. So WebAssembly, I know Mozilla's been using it for the Firefox browser as well as Rust, but I've only been a spectator up to this point, so I'd love to check that out. Yeah. Just as a, as a warning, it is more work, and you will be frustrated in the beginning. But it's one of those things where if you bang your head against the wall, it's like you're banging your head against the wall at a very slight angle. So every time you do, like you make a little bit of progress, and it's actually quite nice. Excellent. So I've got some picks. I just came back from Tokyo. Uh, spoke at DevRelCon Tokyo. Feel free to watch that talk. It's, it was okay, but the city was great. Um, I had a lot of opportunity to take the train system, which works very well. Got lost in Tokyo Central Station, which is like my main pick. Which, if you want to get shopping done before you have to catch an airplane, just walk around there. I went to the Pokemon store. They have like every single Pokemon. My my son's a Pokemon master. He's specializing in fire type, so I got him a Pokemon as well. Uh, oh, that's cool. A little Fennekin. So I got him Pokemon's. Got a bunch of Japanese stuff. Got some anime stuff for my wife. So Tokyo Central Station. If you have a time crunch and you need to do a lot of shopping, just check it out. 
Also, want to mention green screens. So I've been doing this thing since I worked at, basically since I joined GitHub as an employee, everything's remote. I have a green screen behind me uh, in my office, and people always get a really good kick out of it. Like I'll be in interviews, and I'll just have like a different office in the background. Up until last week, I was actually, my office was my garage, so it wasn't very pleasing to have as a background. So I had a green screen of like super nice coffee shops and backgrounds, and it would go like 15 minutes in the meeting, and people would be like, where are you? Or my coworkers be like, "How are you in the office right now? Like, where are you?" And I just be like, "Oh, that's a green screen." Where, where, where do you get the green screen, and where do you get the video footage of the coffee shop? And yeah, whatnot? so <laughs> I went to like I think it was Unsplash. There's mm. like uh, stock images of coffee shops. There's not actual video. I haven't tried video yet because I wanted to make it realistic. Hopefully, and video can kind of see sort of the edges. The green screen I got from Amazon. Just picked up a cheap green screen. And then Zoom actually has a feature built in. If you're, if you're a paid user, you can actually do visual backgrounds. So check it out. I'm hopefully get a blog post written up about this. I'm going to ship it internally just to share with my coworkers first. But yeah, if you have a bad office or a bad setup with it's only very aesthetic, get a green screen. You'll love yourself, and your coworkers will love you as well. My final pick is I have a new podcast. It's called Hallway Track, the Hallway Track. It's a podcast, Hallway Track Online. So check it out if you want to hear me. In a different situation and environment, I just basically go to conferences and grab speakers and then corner them and ask them a couple questions. Like, it's what we normally do already. We sort of just like meet new people in the hallway. So, I, me and my coworker decided to go ahead and record this and see how. Yeah, do you want to mention what the hallway track is? Like, it's one of yeah. my favorite things about conferences. Yeah, so hallway track, I don't know if it, it's, I'm not sure if it's a well known term, but anyway, you go to a conference and majority of the talks are recorded. You can watch them after the fact. And like it's either hit or miss, especially at single track conferences. Like whether you get stuck in a good talk or a bad talk, regardless, I just end up sitting in the hallway and meeting new people. And like a lot of the guests I've had on this podcast have been from the hallway track in general, not the podcast, but in general, just meeting people at conferences in the hallway. So it's just uh, it's another track at the conference that you just kind of stand around and have cool conversations. So definitely check it out. And uh, Sean, again, thanks for talking about GraphQL and OneGraph. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. And listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 